Thank you, guys. It's great. You know, we just came off our Alpha weekend away, and a number of us are here today. Yeah, a little cheer goes up. We had a yeah, we had a great weekend uh, hosted by the Nelson Covenant Church, and uh, we're very thankful for them. One of our sister churches over in Nelson, and the people that brought food and served us and hung around all day while we we uh, went through four of our Alpha sessions together. And so I just want to let you know that we had a we had a terrific weekend. We're excited about what God is doing in, in our lives, and and it was a real treat to be to be over there uh, for for the weekend to walk the streets of Nelson and try to fit in with the locals. You know, <clears throat> it was awesome. Well, welcome back to the Revelation this morning. Uh, believe it or not, I know it's going to come as a shock to you. Believe it or not, we have three weeks left in this epic vision, and you're thinking what? There's six chapters left. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I've been feeling the same thing. But let's catch up before we get into it. Okay. So Jesus has shared this whole apocalypse. And we've talked about this all the time. Right? Apocalypse is not some big scary thing, but it's Jesus pulling back a curtain, revealing something that's true that maybe we didn't realize it was true. Three things that he's been highlighting all through the Revelation. The first one is that Jesus is present. You know, especially in those situations where it doesn't look like Jesus is present. It, it doesn't look like he's around. It looks like we're getting crushed. It looks like we're being, we're under this extreme pressure. All these bad things are happening. And so the apocalypse of Jesus, the revelation, pulls back the curtain to show God's people, to show us that Jesus is actually present. The second thing that he's been showing us all through it is that the enemy is defeated. Doesn't always look like it. He still looks terribly fierce. The problems look huge, but he really wants us to know that the enemy has been defeated. And so time and time and time again through the Revelation, we receive these visions or this imagery or these stories or you know these different things that are going on to show us the basic fact that though the enemy looks daunting and looks invincible, he's already been defeated. And then the third thing, which brings us really to our point today, is that he wants to show us all the way through that loyalty leads to life, but compromise Kills. This has been something that threaded right from those early memos that Jesus wrote that kind of prefaced the rest of the vision. He's always saying in a variety of ways, look, loyalty will lead to life, but compromise will kill you. Don't compromise. All the way through. Most recently, just before Easter, we looked at uh, this series of, 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 of visions, uh, plagues in Revelation 15 and 16, where God is pictured as delivering his people from their enemy. And he uses the old Exodus story of, of God delivering his people out of Egypt to kind of cast this uh, vision for them that God will deliver them. In fact, he'll even do it in a similar way. It's like God draws the line and says, this coming judgment on, in this particular case, Rome, because of the way they've mistreated and persecuted people, he, he shows them all this to give them courage. And right at the end of that section in, in Revelation 16, there's a little uh, sentence. It's half a verse. It says this. I think it'll be on the screen. It says, God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his Wrath. And remember, we talked about this. God's wrath is not God having a hissy fit because things didn't go his way. It actually represents God's total and sustained opposition to all that is evil, to all that destroys human lives, destroys God's earth, destroys his plans. That's what God's wrath is. And so here in Revelation 15, 16, it's like God says, 
in particular to Rome, but it says, look, that's it, no more. And what happens next is really uh, interesting, really critical. Jesus wants his people, he wants us to get this down deep. It's critical somehow to Jesus that we understand this, that his people understand it. it's key to our faithfulness. And so Jesus takes this one little sentence, and then he, get this, he blows it up large, literally spending the next three chapters unpacking that little verse. Why would he do that? Because somehow he wants his followers to get, to really get Rome, in this case, Rome's true nature and and true fate, so that they can remain loyal to him, to King Jesus, and resist easy compromise. That's really been the point of this whole letter of Revelation. Every vision, every challenge, all the imagery, you know, red dragons and demonic frogs and plagues and trumpets and beasts, uh, this vision of the victorious lamb and his followers, all of it is about remaining loyal to Jesus. And so he unpacks this in these next three chapters, Romans 7, or Revelation 17, 18, and 19. And I know, believe me, that that's a lot of material, okay? I get it. You know, a few weeks ago, a few of us butchered a cow. Yeah. And our dogs got these huge bones, which at first they were just exuberant about because they're like, oh my goodness, Christmas has come. Grab this big bone, run around the yard. But then when I threw them a second one, and it was just as large, and then I threw them another one, then I threw them a rib on top. After a while, you know what they were doing? They were just looking at me. Like, what am I supposed to do with this now? You know, okay? And they kind of drugged them around the yard. It's kind of gross. I've cleaned up since then. But, you know, uh, so, they, but they kind of had this look on their face like, what are you doing? I already have plenty to deal with, right? But, you know, later, after they dug it up again out of Tennille's flower bed, and, uh, there was a bit of dirt on it that just sort of brought some extra protein, life, minerals, I don't know what. Then they chewed on it a little later. So, my hope this morning <laughs> is that while I may throw a few big bones out, and I may gloss over a few things, that at least there'll be something for you to chew on for the next <clears throat> week. I'm not going to be able to explain everything in detail, obviously. And I've wrestled, I've wrestled for quite a few weeks with how to present this material, because... Um, yeah, I could have broken it all down, but it actually belongs together. That's the challenge of this big vision. It belongs together, and it actually comes down to one single point. Loyalty leads to life, but compromise kills. And so the challenge in there is to choose life, to stay loyal to Jesus. And in these final moments of Revelation, it's almost like the jet is lifting off. We're getting a little bit further away. And the choice between loyalty and compromise becomes very stark. Well, how does Jesus do that? How does he challenge, compromise, and call for loyalty? I think in five compelling ways that emerge out of Revelation 17 through 19. So if you're willing, let's go through this together. I couldn't print it all on your, on your insert this week. You understand why? I tried to print the five main points we're going to go through and some of the highlights. But if you have a Bible, there's one also maybe in, in one of your close benches, or you can pull it up on your smartphone. I do encourage you to, to um, you know, travel along with us. All right, let's do it. First, 
to challenge compromise and call for loyalty, Jesus shows his followers who they're dealing with. Picturing this beautiful, powerful, winsome Roman Empire, in this case, as a blood-drunk prostitute destined for disaster. It's very stark. Remember, we've already seen in Revelation, it's already come out a number of times, that Rome is pictured, or Roman Empire in particular, pictured as this beast that the devil's been using to wage his war against God's people. He wants to crush them. He wants to make them compromise. He wants to get them to worship anyone other than Jesus, or certainly not to get them, doesn't want them loyal to Jesus, exclusively worshiping him. And so one of his main tools has been taking this Roman emperor, who really loves himself, and, and using him to crush God's people. And as you hear uh, me read now from chapter 17 and a little bit into 18, and I'll skip a little bit, don't get lost in all the details. All the symbolism here simply says one thing. I know it's surprising to hear all this, especially if you've been drugged through this before, but all of it in chapter 17 and 18 is trying to say one thing. Babylon the Great is Rome. That's the main point that he's trying to make. Let's read it together or hear it as I read uh, Revelation 17. And I will skip a little bit just for the sake of time. Here it is. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, this is coming right out of the vision we already received in, in Revelation 15, 16. One of these plagues, bowls. Uh, he had one of the seven bowls, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. This is imagery used for the compromise that they've had. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Get in the picture? She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills, click, click, Rome, on which the woman sits. And then he goes on to describe these horns and these heads, and it gets really symbolic. Think political cartoon, trying to kind of sketch it all out. And then right at the end of chapter 17 says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Into chapter 18, a few verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk 
the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. What's this all about? Jesus wants his followers to know who they're dealing with. We forget, especially from this distance, just how sexy and seductive Rome really was. How alluring the empire was. You know, compromise with Rome, whether it was these petty kings or whether it was the merchant groups or whoever it was, compromise with Rome didn't only seem inevitable, it was desirable. It felt like getting into bed with her was like hitting the jackpot. Until you see who she really is. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's pulling back the curtain so that his people can see exactly who they'd be in bed with. What she's really like. What she's really drinking in that cup she's been sipping on all night. Jesus wants his people to know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, who she really is so they don't get sucked in by her winsome charms. Well, cutting through all the imagery, what did the compromise mean for them? What did it really look like? It meant in some way giving in to the overwhelming pressure to worship Caesar as Lord. To somehow figure, you know what? I want to follow Jesus, but in order to get things done, in order to feed my family, in order to move things forward, i got to pinch a little incense to Caesar. i got to give a little nod to Domitian. Yes, you're Lord and God, not. But, you know, yeah, you are. i got to do something to kind, of, to kind of cut the corner, kind of compromise, so that I can get on with life. Surely that's okay, isn't it? Surely I can, I can follow some of the practices that Rome has been committing and, and kind of go along with some of their economic policies because I can see the benefit it would bring to me. Jesus wants to show them what that kind of easy compromise would look like. He wants to show them that if they compromise, this is who they'd be sleeping with. Not a beautiful bride, but a blood-drunk prostitute that's destined for disaster. It's an awful image. Unless you think, and I know people have, unless you think this betrays some kind of biblical misogyny or prudishness, uh, this prostitute here is set in deliberate contrast to another woman who comes up soon in the story of Revelation, who represents another city coming in the next few chapters, the bride of the Lamb and the new Jerusalem that descends. And so some people have said these last few chapters of Revelation are like the tale of two women or the tale of two cities, representing two very different endings. One, the road of compromise, and the other, the road of loyalty. And so Jesus pulls back the curtain right off the bat to say, this is who your temptress is. This is who you're dealing with. Well, what does he do next? Following this revelation, Jesus shows his followers what they need to do to remain faithful. Just a couple verses there in Revelation 18, 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins have piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. This is probably the central challenge to this whole vision. It might even be the central sort of challenge or the imperative in all of Revelation. Come out of her, my people. It echoes the prophet Jeremiah when he was calling God's people to come, literally, physically, to flee from the ancient city of Babylon because it was going to be destroyed. Here in Revelation, with Babylon now equal in Rome, that call to come out isn't a physical call. 
It's a spiritual one. It's not a call to leave the empire, which was impossible, but rather a call to remain true and faithful to the true king, to Jesus. In the context of a seductive empire, to be willing to suffer because I am aligned with Jesus. To be willing to stand up and say, I will love my neighbor, not mistreat them. I will not follow that kind of policy. I will be a faithful and true witness to Jesus. And rather than compromise, to stand tall. We're going to come back to this because this is, I think, a central central point to what's going on. This this call to come out of Rome can might sound a bit strange to us, but it, I think, would have sounded even stranger for them. You see, for most of the people who first received the revelation, there are some exceptions, of course, we've seen that, but for most of the people, most of the Christians first receiving this, things hadn't gotten really bad yet. I mean, it seemed like there were some things beginning to happen, but compromise was still fairly subtle. Life could still be reasonably comfortable. Rome even still looked fairly, fairly good, fairly beneficial to the world at large, pretty stable. But what God does here is he shows them how he actually sees Rome. That Rome, in, in God's eyes, had become a blight on everything that it touched. And so what does Jesus do? Third thing, Jesus pulls back the curtain, gives an apocalypse to his followers, so that they'll see why Rome will be destroyed. And he focuses his critique, his reasons, for Rome's demise on the way they have abused people. Rome's abuse of people uh, in the text, we'll read it next, uh, is really demonstrated in two ways. First, they persecute God's people. We've already heard that. We're going to hear it again. Hence all the blood-drinking imagery. A little strange, but has to do with what they've done, they get. But more generally, Rome's elite have reveled in excessive luxury because of their abusive economic policies. And what you hear next in Revelation 18, all the biblical scholars just go wild in this one because it stands out. It's a stunning prophetic critique of Rome's systemic abuse of people, both through their economic policy and their religious fanaticism. So I want you to listen for it as we read now Revelation 18, 6 through 24. Here it is. So after calling them to come out, sins are piled up, God's going to remember her crimes. Then the call keeps, keeps on going. Give back to her what she's given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen, I'm not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine shall be consumed by fire for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth, who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they'll weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they'll stand afar off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city! You mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, Precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice and of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine wine and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, 
and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They'll weep and mourn and cry out, Woe! Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors, all who earn their living from the sea and will stand far off when they see the smoke of her burning, they'll exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They'll throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe! Woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Then the voice changes. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone, threw it in the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No work of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's people, of all who have been slaughtered on earth. Yeah. Do you hear these twin emphases in here? Rome is judged because of how they treated, or shall I say, mistreated people. Both God's people through religious fanaticism and others through economic exploitation. A simple example, if you dig into it, it's very fascinating, is this list of imported luxury items listed in verse 12 through 13. Each one of them, when you dig into the history, represents incredibly opulent wealth founded upon exploitation. Every one of the items. 28 items, which we've learned so far, numbers like 28, 7 times 4, symbolic, representing all of the earth's goods, with the last commodity in the list being the traffic in human beings. Violence and abuse rotted at the very core of Rome, and Jesus wants his people to know that when he brings Rome to judgment, his judgment is just, because of the way they treated people. And so all those who benefited from their compromise, their alliances, their going along with Rome's practices, which Jesus calls adultery, they mourn the downfall of Rome. They cry out, woe at the rapid demise of their cash cow. Rome is judged for how they abused people, as will any nation, any regime, any system in history that chooses to abuse people. God remembers them and brings them down. But is it worth crying over? You see all this mourning and weeping going on. Or should Rome's fall evoke celebration? That's where Jesus goes next. He shows his followers, number four, he shows his followers heaven's perspective on Rome's demise. With multitudes now singing hallelujah because of the deliverance that God has brought from Rome's oppressive regime. I want you to hear the hallelujahs ring out. Do you know that this is the only place in the New Testament where the hallelujah, where hallelujahs show up? This is it. Nowhere else, I didn't know that. It's in the Old Testament, but nowhere else in the New Testament, just here, as heaven celebrates God's victory over Rome. 
Let's read the first 10 verses of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged her the blood of his servants. Again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried out, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. You fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to Jesus' testimony. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is quite a scene. The contrast between the weeping and wailing of those who've benefited from Rome's abusive practices and now the worship of heaven, the worship to God who's finally stopped the abuser and brought justice and brought deliverance. This vision is, I think, very compelling for God's people who are still very much caught in this abusive system. And how would it have challenged them? Never to compromise. To see what Rome is made of to keep loving people, to keep witnessing to the true king, even in a culture, even in a regime, even under an oppressive government and system and and, and the people around them and the trade guilds, all these systems that have rejected God and are continuing to ruin people, that they would stand up and they'd say, I am a follower of Jesus and I'm going to live differently. I follow a different king. This vision encourages God's people to worship God defiantly. Right in the face of the oppressive regime, knowing that there's more going on than meets the eye, so that when they gather, maybe through the week, maybe on the weekends, maybe whenever they would gather in homes and in maybe you know larger places or out in a field somewhere, when they'd gather and they'd worship God, they'd remind each other of who they're loyal to. They'd remind each other of what is really true. They'd remind each other of who Jesus is and what He is doing, who they're fighting, who they're following, even as they worship. And they would join Jesus in this invitation to move toward this marriage feast that they had been invited into as they remain loyal to him. But if you're a Christian in Rome, or maybe a Christian living in a dark place, you're still left wondering how. I mean, okay, I know who the enemy is. In this case, yeah, I get it. I can see who Rome is. I don't want to compromise. I, I can see I need to, to, to come out. I know what I need to do. I, I can see that God's judgment is, is, is just, and I can see, I can see why I'm getting, I'm getting all this, but how is this going to happen? Well, that's where Jesus goes next. Rome is incredibly powerful. It's seemingly indestructible. And the question of how God's enemies will actually finally be destroyed, how justice will come, how God will deliver us, Jesus shows this to them by giving them, here at the end, a full apocalypse. The fifth 
compelling way that Jesus challenges compromise and calls for loyalty is by finally revealing himself to his followers, coming as the king of kings, the faithful and true, to destroy Rome and her allies in this great battle of final judgment. And using many images we've already seen, Jesus arrives as the faithful and true warrior with his people following him, dressed in the fine linen we've already heard about, finally ready to deal with the enemy. Here it is, this last section in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Remember? The fight hasn't happened yet. The blood that his robes have been dipped in are his own blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. And are you ready for this big war? But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. You can see why I was sweating bullets the last few weeks. Jesus is on the scene. He's bringing down the smack, right? That's what's going on here. How many enemies are routed? They're finished. The victory comes. See how this all wraps up? Think of how these Christians who are in the middle of the pressure, right in between an empire that demands their loyalty and Jesus who compels their faithfulness. Think of the pressure they were under. Think of how the Christians would have been challenged and encouraged by this vision that Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he'll capture and destroy the enemy that had seemed so invincible, so powerful. And he'll reduce it to nothing like that. Jesus just shows up and it's over. Some have been ready to cave into compromise. And this vision says, stay loyal. Some have been beaten down low and they're barely holding on. And it says, keep following the Lamb. Others have been confused about their enemy. You know, kind of befuddled by his, by his strategies. And they're thinking, maybe I could just cut a corner here. And the message is, don't compromise. And others have been faithful and faithful. And they've suffered for it. And they've suffered for it. And they've continued to suffer more. And this message says, Jesus knows. He will not forget you. 
And so this vision of Jesus showing up, dealing with the enemy, it caps off his challenge. His challenge to compromise and his call for loyalty. All of them designed to pose this one question. Are you going to get into bed with her? Or are you going to follow me? Will you remain loyal? Or will you compromise? That is the question that Revelation poses. The whole Revelation, in particular here at the end, these ending chapters, it's coming to focus. Will we be faithful? Or will we compromise? Well, I know that's a lot. I know we just blasted through a whole bunch of stuff. And some of you are feeling deeply dissatisfied right now. Because I've not talked about heads and kings and ones that were and is and not. Others of you are just hoping I would finish this right now. But that would be wrong too. Realizing how much we've gone through, let's just get practical for a few finishing minutes, okay? What does this mean for us now? I mean, really. Come on. Well, I will admit that part of my strategy this morning is that I want to at least lead you through it a little bit so you can see kind of what the big, where the big pieces fit, especially in light of some of the confusion we hear about the revelation. So there was part of my goal. But really, I want to ask the question, how does Jesus challenge our compromise now? How does he call for our loyalty today? See, this whole section is about that. It's about, it's about somehow, as Jesus pulls back the curtain, he presents us with a stark reality, a stark choice. He, you know, it's, it's, it's this awful, awful woman choice thing, beast. And, 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 then, and then it's Jesus on a horse bringing victory. And it's very stark. He wants us to see with, if I can say it this way, with apocalyptic clarity, to rip back this curtain and say, look, it's me or it's her. Make your choice. Now, how compromise looks in our day is going to be very different. We're 1,900 years and counting away from, you know, an emperor who really wanted us to worship. We're a long ways away from some of the realities and the cultural things that they faced. We face different challenges, different opportunities. But the challenge to compromise, the assault on our loyalty, is just as relevant today as it ever was. And Jesus is just as present as he ever was. So how does that challenge look like? How does that challenge look in my life? What does loyalty look in yours? You know, as I read through these chapters, it struck me that there's, there's two primary ways that we're often tempted to compromise. The first is through the promise of pleasure, where we're wooed and we're, we're coddled and we're promised all these good things and we're promised luxury, we're promised ease. And really, the only thing you have to do is, is compromise. All you have to do to get all these good things and to get in on the club and to have everything that goes your way, all you have to do is, is just kind of leave Jesus off to the side. I mean, just for a few minutes. That's all you have to do. And the choice to compromise often doesn't look stark at all. It simply looks like a life where you pursue your own comfort, your own priorities, rather than the priorities of Jesus. Which is why I think Jesus does what he does in this vision. For these ancient Christians, he tries to put the choice in very stark terms so they can see what's really going on. He wants to do the same for us. He wants us to somehow see that when we cut those corners, when we pursue pleasure, when we go after the things that will make us feel great and kind of leave Jesus aside in order to do it, 
we're making a very bad choice. He wants us to see that. He wants us to see that it's not as simple as just trying out a few things, but we're actually leaving him. We're actually going around and sleeping with someone else. That, that's, what, that's why Jesus uses the imagery he uses. So the first way is through this promise of pleasure. But the other way we are tempted to com- compromise, and we see it here in, this, in these chapters, is through threat of pain. That if we stay loyal to Jesus, that if we don't compromise, if we really stand firm, something bad is going to happen. Your, your friends are going to leave you, you know. They're not going to call anymore. Your wife's going to be really upset. Your husband's going to think you're crazy. Your boss is going to make life miserable. All your personal comforts will be taken away. And usually inserted in there is some sense that Jesus, you know what? He's going to make your life miserable. That if you do that, if you stand up, if you decide to love this person who's difficult to love, if you serve in that selfless way, if you actually witness to Jesus, if you actually talk about what God is doing in your life, you are going to get it in the side of the head. That if you aren't willing to compromise, if you're not willing to sort of be realistic about life, if you insist on being loyal to Jesus, you are going to suffer. Promise of pleasure or threat of pain. I think those are two of the ways that we are pushed toward compromise. But whether it comes through the promise of pleasure or the threat of pain, compromise can look very similar in our lives. It's choosing to serve myself, whatever the cost to others. It's choosing, I like this one, choosing to serve Jesus, but only when it actually suits me. Particularly if it makes me look good. Right? How about using other people for my own purposes? Compromise can be just evaluating personal priorities according to my comfort as opposed to my commitment to Jesus. Evaluating the direction of my life based on what I want to do versus what God is calling us to to do doing what i want with my sexuality because come on my pleasure matters more than what jesus wants for me for my life it matters more and so i make choices with how i want to live and what i want to do and who i want to do it with and where i want to do it and where, you know all those choices i make according to my own priorities rather than what jesus desires for us when i let my heart be distracted by pleasure or by worries. And then I make daily decisions based on that distraction. These are all ways that we can be sucked into compromise. And Jesus today wants to say to us, look, I have an amazing plan for you. I love you. Hear my invitation, even here in this story, to be at the great feast. But if you choose compromise, it'll kill you. Loyalty will lead to life. And so the question for us today, I can't answer this for you, you can't answer it for me. The question is, in my life, what does compromise look like? Some of us are really given to that promise of pleasure that really draws us. Others, we cower under the threat of pain. But for each one of us, we face the question, will we remain loyal or will we compromise? And it's not because Jesus is standing on the other side of the curtain with a big stick. It's because Jesus says, I have a way that leads to life. If you will follow me, you will live. You may suffer in the short term, but you will live. And it'll be awesome. But if you don't want that, if you want to compromise, I want to show you also where that will lead you. Not because I want you to go there, 
Not because I want you to experience disaster in your relationships. Not because I want you to hurt. I want to show you where that leads so that you understand that there may be short-term suffering by choosing to follow me. But in the long run, it's all going to come out good. In the long run, it'll lead to life. He does that so that we can stay loyal to him and experience life knowing that compromise will kill us. And so the question for us today is, in my life, compromise looks like blank. But loyalty to Jesus looks like this. I don't know what that is for you. But I know for each one of us, we're being asked the question this morning by Jesus. And he's asking a very simple question. Will you remain loyal to me and live? Or will you compromise and experience disaster? Let's pray. Jesus, you love us so passionately. You long for us to experience life. And yet on a daily level, we are pushed and pressured and threatened and promised with life in other ways. Life that somehow goes around your desires for us. And your desire this morning is to pull back the curtain and help us see that no, those are false promises. Those are empty threats so that we can choose you and follow you. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you'd be willing to step in and challenge our compromise and call for our loyalty for our sakes, for the sake of our lives, for the sake of us becoming all that you have created us to be. And so today as we go, I pray for each one of us that we this week would hear your invitation to the table, your invitation to the feast, your desire to pour into our lives good things. And in that, we would stand up and follow after you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. I know that some of you have that same look in your eyes that my dogs had a couple weeks ago thinking, and now what am I supposed to do with that? Well, my prayer for you this week, for all of us this week, is that in the midst of all that, we would just hear Jesus' invitation to follow him. And so as you go today, I hope you can join us at coffee time, visit, mingle, connect. But as you go today, may you hear the voice of Jesus calling you to follow him, because he loves you. I love you. I want to see God's best for you. God bless.